0: This is Paul Schneierman today on the 140th edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio. My special guest today is Josh Sims. Josh is known online as the, the CFB travel guy. Josh is on a quest, I believe, to essentially visit as many college football Division One stadiums as possible. Do I have that down right, Josh? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Okay. Uh, my podcast is now on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbean. You go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. I encourage my listeners to click the like button like button, regarding my show, not the hate button, and comment and go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. And you can check out my show on a, on those outlets. You can also just Google YouTube Sports Untold. You can see a lot of my shows on, on video. My uh, new producer, now I guess now for several months, is Olivia Coyne. Been friends with Olivia's family for years. She's a UW student, doing a great job. Well, let me get back to you, Josh. Josh is a self-described parishioner of college football cathedrals. I, I, I love that uh, that term. Uh, Josh is, is known as a frequent traveler at many major college football stadiums. You can follow Josh on his YouTube channel, CFB Travel Guy, or at CFB Travel Guy. You can follow him on Instagram, CFB Travel Guy, and TikTok at CFB.TravelGuy. Do I have that right? Yep, you got it. Okay. Okay. I'm mostly on Facebook and Twitter, so I'm on Instagram now and then, I, but I'm not on TikTok yet, so I need to maybe uh, consider doing that to to pick yep. up on some more. It's outlets. really just more trying to reach that video platform, since that's so much of what I
1: do is showing videos from games and, and that sort of thing. But uh, Facebook and
0: Twitter will be coming soon. Great. Josh, this sounds a little low. Can you, can you get a little closer to the mic, maybe? Yeah. Thanks, appreciate it. Just want to make sure we can we can hear you well. Well, okay. Josh, I really appreciate you coming on the Sports Untold podcast. This is a Seattle-based show, also on the Seattle-based Rainier Avenue Radio.world. All right, Josh. Well, um, why don't you tell us kind of how you got the bug to see so many college football stadiums. Tell us about how you how this uh, journey got installed in you. I grew up in a
1: family full of LSU fans, so it kind of starts there. Uh grew up with SEC football. And ended up going to the University of Florida. My parents moved from Louisiana to Florida when I was a young kid. So uh, I went to the local SEC school for college. And while I was there, always enjoyed football, always enjoyed going to the games and would kind of follow around Florida wherever they played um, throughout college and even in the years following. But it wasn't until 2018 that I really started to expand a little bit further. One of my brothers became a commercial airline pilot. And uh, kind of through that was able to travel to different places really at will and uh, ended up moving to the Midwest for that job. So we started off with some Big Ten games. We went to Nebraska and uh, Michigan. And we saw that there's such a cultural difference in each place you go, but they still do college football in their own unique way. And there's just a special passion to it that's just a little bit different everywhere you go. So that's when I kind of caught the bug and said, you know, I want to see everything. I want to see how the Pac-12 does it. I want to see how big 12 schools in the middle of the country do it. Uh, so that's really how it started. And since then, just
0: been traveling around uh, doing a game each week. Josh, I can hear you fine. I'm just wondering if it still could be a little low. So just see if you can work on that. But but um, if you can't do it, I can hear you. But just I find the louder it is. Usually it comes across better on the the, the right. podcast. But but do your best. No No pressure. Um, you know, Josh, you mentioned something. What What are some regional differences you've seen in general with some of the college football stadiums and atmospheres? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that for me? Yeah. What are some some just general regional differences you've seen in some of the college football stadiums and their atmospheres? Uh, I mean, some of it has to do with just very basics of size. You know, in the Big Ten and the
1: SEC, you have some monster stadiums, 100,000 plus Um, part of that is just having to do with regionality to major cities where you're within two hours of multiple major cities, like university of Florida is two hours from Orlando, two hours from Tampa, two hours from Jacksonville. Um, so you you have some instances of that same in the big 10, um, with Ohio state, for example, it's close to Cincinnati. It's in Columbus, which is a city on its own. And then it's also close to Cleveland, uh, Whereas some more rural stadiums, you get up to the Pacific Northwest and uh, you know you go to Pullman. It's not a big stadium, and uh, sorry, let me get this here. Um, so size is part of it. The tailgating is obviously different everywhere at SEC schools for whatever reason. Tailgating is done anywhere there's a piece of grass on campus. People will set up a tailgate on the grass, and you don't see a whole lot of parking lot tailgating. There just aren't a lot of parking lots on the campuses the way they were designed. Um, In the Big Ten, on the other hand, you tend to have more like pro stadiums, where there's a lot of open parking area directly around a stadium. It's maybe not in the heart of campus, but separated out a little bit. So the tailgating is more focused on in parking lots, tightly packed, and is more literal to tailgating. You know, you're behind the tailgate of your truck with a tent, a couple of tables, uh, cooking equipment, TVs, whatever it may be. Um, so that kind of changes the landscape across the country. But as for the in-game atmospheres, every place from if there's really not even a conference or regional divide so much as a school by school basis, everybody has their own unique traditions that tend to rise out of nowhere and tend to be hilarious and funny and a lot of times very silly. Um, and those are the things that really are special to me. I went to Texas Tech this year, for example, way back in the late 80s, from my understanding is that an announcer for one of their games said there's not really much in Lubbock besides Texas Tech University and a tortilla factory. (laughs) So because of that, they started throwing tortillas at kickoff of every game and after touchdowns. So now to this day, they still sneak tortillas into the stadium and throw them into the air at kickoff and after big scores.
0: I never knew that. That's a fun tradition. Yeah,
1: Right. And and there are a lot of different things like that. And they tend to rise up out of nowhere. And you see it from the West Coast to the East. You see it, you know, in Texas. You see it even if you go up uh, into Minnesota. You know, they're just very strange, kind of peculiar traditions everywhere you go uh, that tend to have just kind of funny origins. And that's the stuff that culturally makes each school unique and special. Love it.
0: Josh, give me one minute. I want to close this door. Just one minute Sorry about that. I, I, I find when all these and everything gets closed, the sound tends to be a little better. Um, I love it. I, you know, I never knew about that Texas tech tradition. I mean, that's just so much fun. Okay. i got a thought for you. I want to get your insight on this thought, Josh. So take college football stadiums or football stadiums in general versus baseball stadiums. Baseball mm-hmm. stadiums are literally different in their size and complexion. For example, right. the outfield zones can be different. The number of feet it takes say to hit a home run.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: um, so baseball stadiums, you literally see differences. I mean, in the size and literally the size of the field. Football stadiums are all 100 yards. But would you say football stadiums versus baseball stadiums, the atmosphere outside the stadium maybe plays more of a role in evaluating the experience versus, say, going to a baseball stadium?
1: Absolutely. Football to me is a sport that is well beyond the three and a half, four hours you spend inside the confines of the stadium. A football game day to me starts at nine in the morning. When you wake up and you get out and you're ready to go, especially in college, more so than pro, where you've got that campus environment and you've got morning pregame shows that are done on campus. So people will get up and watch that. Um, I apologize for this beeping here. I'm trying to shut off uh <laughs> notifications, but- fine. Uh, Hold on just a second. Um, but yeah, there's so much more to the atmosphere and football that's beyond just the end game. Uh, so much more that's done around. And obviously there are places, some of the older ballparks you see in the major leagues that have a lot of history and were built within neighborhoods. You know, you have, if you go back to Ebbets field, places like that, that are no longer in existence, but now you have Fenway and, uh, in Ridley, I've been to both of those. And those have much more of an atmosphere outside the stadium, too, because they're tightly packed within a neighborhood. So everybody is kind of squeezing into the restaurants and bars and places directly around those stadiums. And that tends to be a little bit more similar to what you see in college, where people are tightly packed within a campus more so than a neighborhood and really right there around the stadium, hanging out for hours
0: before the game. Good observations. Yeah, you're right. College football stadiums maybe are more rural in nature maybe than some baseball stadiums although i'm sure there's exceptions to that too but um okay so how many college football stadiums have you visited and what's a major stadium you have not seen yet um let's see i think
1: i'm up to 60 now and uh probably the biggest that i haven't visited is the la memorial coliseum i have not seen a usc home game that's probably the biggest one remaining uh one that's also very high on my list is to get out to morgantown and see West Virginia, uh, Milan Puskar Stadium there. Obviously, they've got some great traditions with country roads and kind of the singing of that, uh, some really unique stuff. So I'm
0: excited to see those. Try to get them off your bucket list maybe next season? That's the plan. I'm trying to get to gotcha, both of gotcha. them. Plus, you go to Los Angeles, there's other stuff to see there too. So that you can right, turn it into- and it,
1: that's honestly part of the reason why I haven't been there yet is because I've been to L.A. multiple times, and you know, there's only so much that relates specifically to that. Uh, that game day experience. Whereas if you're a little bit more isolated and you go to some of these smaller towns and campuses, everything revolves around football game.
0: Well, I've spent considerable time in Los Angeles area. My last time I was in LA was about a year ago. I checked out three venues I'd never seen before. I checked out the new Academy Award, uh, museum, which was terrific. Oh. And it opened a couple of years ago. I also checked out the Reagan library museum and the Nixon library museum. I never had seen those. So yeah, Those i have been by the Reagan Museum. That's, it's impressive. Yeah, yeah, the Nixon one's interesting too. All the presidential libraries museums are interested. Interesting. Right. Okay, so you go online and you see so many rankings of college football stadiums. I could spend hours going through what a particular pundit or publication thinks. I'm going to read one of them too. I'm not going to go through all of it. And I want to get your take on this ranking. So USA Day, a columnist, Maybe it was a, a collective group of columnists back in August 2023 ranked the top 10 college football stadiums. One, they picked the Alabama one, two, Austin and Oregon, three, Tiger Stadium, the LSU one, four, the Old Miss one, five, Sanford Stadium, University of Georgia, six, Ohio Stadium, Ohio State, seven, Beaver Stadium at Penn State, eight, Husky Stadium in Seattle, nine, Texas Stadium at UT Austin, and number 10, the University of Michigan Stadium. What do you think of that list, and what is your favorite stadium?
1: I get where the list is coming from. There are several that I would personally disagree with, but part of the reason I have largely stayed away from trying to rank stadiums is because, A, you're just always going to make people mad. Uh, but the other is I really find that most of them are special. I mean, it's so hard to rank. It's like choosing you know, your favorite child. How do you do that when so many of them are so great and you have kind of a personal nostalgic attachment to so many of them? Um within that list though, I, I think they tended to stick with just kind of the the big teams and the big stadiums you see on that list: Alabama, LSU, uh Michigan, Penn State, Ohio State. Those are all hundred thousand square feet, you know, coliseums. I mean, they are huge colossus style uh venues. So I think that probably played a little bit into what they do, and it really depends on what factors kind of drive best for you. As we just saw with the college football playoff committee, trying to select the four best teams for the playoff, selecting a best stadium, are you focusing on the size and uh, capacity, the quality of the stadium in terms of modern amenities? Are you more focused on the in-game atmosphere, how much the fans bring, what the crowd noise is? Does setting factor in? Obviously, you know Washington dubs itself pretty accurately as the greatest setting in college football, and so how does that level up on on your evaluation? So, um, yeah, I think the the list is pretty good, but I think every list is going to differ. Some of my favorites are some of the ones on there. I think LSU is a phenomenal environment, particularly for a night game. Uh, that's obviously one that I grew up with, so there's a little bit of bias there. Uh, Michigan, on the other hand, is one of the, the more disappointing ones that I've visited. The Big mm. House, despite its scale, um, the in-game environment can lack at times. I went for a game against Penn State, top 15 matchup. Both teams were really good that year in in 2019. And it ended up being a blowout. So that contributed in the later parts of the game. But early on, when it was still contested, there wasn't a whole lot of noise. You didn't feel that energy in the stadium. Maybe it was perhaps due to the cold, but even outside the stadium, the pregame and tailgating just seemed a little bit subdued compared to a lot of the other large environments you see. So, um, you know, there's obviously some that's just based on your particular experience. My goal is to try to go to the best games I can when I visit a new stadium, try to see the best matchups and opponents and try to get it when it's it's at its peak. Uh, so with that in mind, I try to compare as best I can apples to apples, but uh, yeah, there there are a lot of really good ones out there, and there's some that you know are
0: kind of surprisingly disappointing. Well, another, another we can call it study or ranking I saw, the most scenic stadiums, and including the most scenic stadiums are the Appalachian State Stadium, the BYU Stadium, the Colorado State Stadium. You kind of alluded to this earlier, but I guess the most scenic stadiums can be distinguished from the top stadiums, right? Right. And sometimes they do overlap. I mean,
1: Husky Stadium gets loud. So that's a big factor in its favor, along with the setting. Um, App State, I haven't been to a game there, but I have seen the stadium. And it's kind of tucked in and nestled into the trees. So it is gorgeous. It's a beautiful stadium. Uh, North Carolina kind of has a similar effect on its stadium. The stadium's almost sort of hidden within uh, a bunch of trees that were pre-existing. That are large pine trees that are taller than the stadium. So if you're just driving around campus, you don't even really know that a stadium's there. I think that's kind of a neat setting. Uh, I haven't been to BYU yet, but I did go to Utah earlier this year, and when you're able to sit in the stands and see mountains in the background, that is very very neat. And uh, you know, obviously that does account for it, but. You know, like we just talked about, there's so many different
0: factors to determine what's best. I think setting is definitely one of them. Well, defining what's best in general in so many areas of life is not always easy. So so the USA Today, this is just one pundit or a couple pundits, they picked Husky State 8th out of the top 10. You know, not a bad ranking, but I may sound like a total Seattle University of Washington homer right now. Don't you think eighth is a little a little low for Husky Stadium? That was the greatest setting in college football. Is that a little low?
1: I mean, again, that's kind of asking to rank all the ones I've been to. Um, I think Husky Stadium probably is somewhere in that five to ten range based on the ones I've been to. You know, one that that list, I believe, left off, um, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but I don't think it mentioned Tennessee. Neyland Stadium is a sight. I mean, it sits at ground level. It's right on the Tennessee River. It kind of rises up uh, right from campus. It's huge. It's loud. It's it's a lot of fun, has great energy to it and also has that scenic element. Um, so that's one that I, I would put pretty high on the list. Uh, Alabama, just for the total effect of Tuscaloosa and Bryant Denny being what it is, I think is is accurately right near the top. Um but yeah, Husky Stadium is is
0: truly one of the best in the country. This year, I went and watched the, the Seahawks play Detroit at Ford Field in Detroit, and I went and watched the Huskies play Michigan State at the Michigan State Stadium in, in Lansing. And I got an observation. I, I thought the Michigan State campus I, I enjoyed. The stadium itself seemed a bit outdated, but it had its own charm to it. Is the Michigan State Stadium kind of in the middle? <laughs> is that a... Yeah, I, I mean, that's one that... You know, I wouldn't put in a top
1: 10 by any means. Uh, there are a lot of stadiums, I think, that uh, that are better than that one, just from, a again, scaling all the different pieces together. And Michigan State's a little bit unique that uh, they have kind of an entire athletic complex that's right there. Uh, so they've got the Residence Center that's right across the street from the football stadium. They've got kind of all of their athletics in that one area of campus. And then the main part of campus where the tailgating takes place, where the band performs ahead of time, is just a, a short walk away. Um, but I think that kind of changes the atmosphere of it a little bit. I think if it were located just smack dab in the middle of campus, it may have a little bit more hubbub to it. Because if you go to East L- Downtown East Lansing, which borders the main part of campus, it, it's got a nice energy. It's got a lot of fun. But it that doesn't
0: necessarily make its way to right outside the stadium until forty five minutes an hour before kickoff. I enjoyed the campus and atmosphere, Michigan State. I just thought the stadium was pretty middle of the road. That was my yeah. No, no, I agree. I, I think it is. Uh, the Rose Bowl is picked by. What do you think?
1: It is. It is beautiful, especially if you're there at the right time. The one time I went was for UCLA LSU to open the twenty twenty one season. And that game I think was at four o'clock, you know, maybe five o'clock Pacific. Uh, so the sunset kind of early second half and whatever it is about those San Gabriel mountains that causes it, the colors of that sunset are phenomenal. Uh, one of my lasting memories of watching Rose bowl was when Justin Herbert was in Oregon and I believe they were playing Wisconsin, maybe, uh, but they had the reflective silver helmets on. And as the sun set, you could actually see the pinks and purples being reflected in the Oregon helmets. Uh, so it is a very neat setting. Comparing it to Husky Stadium, I don't think it's quite as impressive. Uh, even comparing it to Utah, I think the mountains at Utah kind of pop and stand out a little bit more.
0: Uh, but the Rose Bowl is is one of the most picturesque for sure. No doubt. Been to Rose Bowl several times. It's it's a fun experience. What's an underrated college football stadium and experience? Um, can I give you a
1: few? Please. So I found that generally, and this is, you know, maybe cutting too wide of a swap here, but the so-called state schools that tend to be a little bit more remote, ag-focused, tend to be land-grant institutions, often get overlooked and a lot of times can be the most fun. So I remember when I was just traveling the SEC before I had expanded out, first time I went to Starkville, Mississippi to check out a Mississippi State football game. I knew about Cowbells, and that's about it. And every Gator fan had this stupid line that they would say, well, there's a reason they call it Starkville, because it's Stark. And I'm like, how bad could it be? Then I show up, and I loved it. The fans were great. Uh, just kind of the energy and culture on campus. Everything revolved around campus in the game weekend experience. Had great local food because when you're in a small place like that, you don't stay open if your food isn't good. Otherwise people just cook at home. Uh, the bars and, around campus were a lot of fun. There was just a great energy to it despite it being kind of a remote small town. And as I've traveled the rest of the country, I've seen that, especially in the Big 12, uh, but really throughout the country. You get to some of these places like Pullman, Washington, and Corvallis. Those are a lot of fun. Not really all that close to anything, but those are great towns where everybody just kind of rallies around. Same in the Big 12. Uh, Lubbock, when I first arrived, was one of the ugliest cities I've ever seen. You know, you kind of come in on the plane, you land at Lubbock Airport, and it's exactly like you see West Texas in the movies, tumbleweeds rolling along, just nothing there. And you drive past downtown, and it's just a bunch of block, kind of sand-colored architecture. And you're like, what's going on here? Then you get to campus, and it's a gorgeous campus, these tile roof buildings. Um, They've got a, a really great strip of bars and restaurants right across from it. And the game energy there, you come in on a Friday, and you know that there's a game happening. You know that there's a big event coming, because they all rally around it. And I found the same thing in Ames, Iowa where historically their football hasn't been all that great. They've had a couple of good seasons recently, um, but historically football hasn't been great. And man, do they show up to tailgate? I mean, they pack the parking lots around their stadium to tailgate. Iowa State University. At Iowa State, yeah. So you go to Jack Trice, and there's actually a little walking bridge across uh, kind of a wide road that borders campus uh, to one parking area. And then there's a large parking area uh, on each side from the end zones. And it's packed, even for games that, you know, don't matter a lot when Iowa state isn't very good. And then you go to their campus and it's much prettier than I would have expected for, you know, being in the middle of Iowa. And uh, they have a campus town area right across from that. that has got a lot of fun bars and restaurants. And again, it's, it's so tightly packed and you have that community again, uh, you know, if you just enjoy visiting little college dives that have been there for 50, 60 years, you tend to find them in those kind of towns, places that endure uh, in those smaller places because they don't necessarily have a ton of competition. And because they develop that nostalgic feeling with the local community to the point that they really become part of that fabric. So a lot of those towns, um, you know, like I mentioned, Lubbock, Ames, Pullman, Starkville, Corvallis. um. Manhattan, Kansas, I went to for the first time this year. Blown away. Love the That's little Kansas Apple. State
0: for the listeners. Kansas
1: State, yeah. So the Little Apple, phenomenal. Uh, they have just kind of a whole uh, kind of plaza square, right? Uh, kind of catty corner from the main entrance to campus called Aggieville. Lots of bars and restaurants. Everybody kind of converges there on Fridays before the games. They've got just kind of an old school, you know, straight out of the – you know 50s cinema main street downtown that's lined with shops and, and restaurants um so it's got a lot of charm to it and then you get on campus for tailgating and right around the stadium everybody's having a ball you get a lot of uh, one of my personal little favorite things is short bus tailgates i found that people who have the full-size buses tend to be a little hoity-toity but you get those short buses that means they're willing to commit and invest in their tailgates but you know, they're not uh they're not spending tons and tons of money. So uh, love it.
0: Love it. I love, I mean, love you put it. Iowa State on my bucket list, you put Mississippi State on it, you've uh Love it, Texas. That's uh Texas, That's Tech, Texas Tech, right? Yeah. Texas Tech, yeah. I, I get I get Texas El Pass on Texas Tech overlap sometimes. So. okay, uh, Texas. Texas. You mentioned that I've been to Pullman Stadium, I've been to Corvallis, but you mentioned some Martin Stadium in Pullman. You mentioned some great spots and and you got very enthusiastic when I asked you to mention some of the underrated stadiums so yeah I mean those are some of my favorites and you know part of the
1: underrated thing even comes down to compared to what you know even within the Big Ten I think people always talk about Ohio State and Michigan and I rarely hear people mention you know outside of the Big Ten at least mention Wisconsin and Wisconsin is one of the top college towns. And again, that's kind of a whole nother ranking system that if you were to do, you know, prettiest campuses or, you know, best college towns, most scenic stadiums, you know, there are a bunch of different little niches that you could carve out for rankings. But if you were doing college towns, just with the setup of campus to the town itself and walkability
0: and everything else, it's hard to beat Madison, Wisconsin. I hear it's a terrific town, terrific college town. Uh, Josh, have you thought about writing a book or putting some sort of coffee table book together on the college football stadiums? I think it'd be terrific. Yeah, that's, that is kind of the long-term goal,
1: uh, something that would really just kind of be a passion project of mine. But it's so hard to put together in the fall when you're trying to maintain social media stuff. And, you know, I haven't even gotten around to doing kind of the full YouTube reviews that I plan to do uh, for each of the stadiums I've visited this year. But that's kind of the, the long overarching project is to put together a resource, whether it's uh, in book form, whether it's an online format, still kind of working through exactly uh, the best way to do that. But to be able to have a searchable database where you say, hey, I want to visit um, you know, University of Kansas. Where do I go? You know, what are the places that are the campus institutions that have been there forever? Uh, you know, I wanna wanna make sure I hit those. Are there any just kind of kooky little traditions that they've got there? Be able to list those out and then give details about the stadium and the environment and where the best places to tailgate are, where kind of the hub of activity is on a game weekend. And that's a lot of stuff that really you have to search pretty hard online for. And something that I do before each game I visit, particularly ones I'm visiting for the first time, is do a lot of research. And I'm talking hours of searching through various Google links to try to piece together, you know, stuff that's still accurate, you know, because things change, especially pre-COVID. You may find a link from 2018 that mentions a spot that's no longer in existence. Um, But kind of piecing that together and then ahead of time, reaching out to locals and alumni and saying, hey, is this stuff that I found accurate? Um, So that's kind of my process. And I I would like to shorten that down for anybody else who wants to do the same and say, here's a resource that has. And here's where you need to go. Here's the things to do. And something just as time goes on. uh, That's kind of another piece of that is even some of the neat things that are right around campus. Um, You know, if you go to West Virginia, I grew up whitewater rafting and kayaking with my dad. That's something I love to do. Two of the best rivers for whitewater in the eastern half of the United States are within an hour drive of West Virginia's campus. So things like that to include little side trips uh, is something that I like to include. So it it becomes very voluminous as you build that up, but it is
0: something that I'm working on. When I've gone on sports trips, I've always tried to see other parts of the, the, the area that I'm traveling to. I went to Detroit this year. I checked out the Henry Ford Museum and I think that's part of the experience of going of traveling sports events. Okay. I know defining the best is hard. You've totally convinced me of that, but what is a fun tailgating experience you've had that has stood out? Um,
1: it is nearly impossible to beat tailgating at LSU. And again, trying to strip my personal bias out of it, uh, having grown up with that LSU tailgating is just different. Uh, It starts Thursday evening for the RVs and for those folks. And by 10 a.m. on campus, if there is a patch of grass, there will be a tailgate on it. And it will have more cooking equipment than you've ever seen outdoors, probably more than you have in your kitchen at every tailgate. And you'll see not one TV, you'll see multiple TVs at every tailgate, usually multiple generators at every tailgate because there's so much electronic equipment. I mean, people are essentially, every week they build outdoor living rooms on campus. I mean, it's it's just an absurd level of, of respect they have for the tailgating experience and how much they value that as part of the total game day uh, kind of hubbub. Uh, so that's really special. Ole Miss obviously has a great reputation for its tailgating and it's well-deserved. The Grove is a lot different because it is so tightly packed. They have these little narrow roadways that actually, as of recently, they've put up signs with, you know, names of former players and coaches to help direct people to find specific tailgates. But uh, one of the great experiences of college sports is to be on the Ole Miss campus. I think it's a, I can't remember if it's 4 PM or 5 PM on Friday afternoon when they officially allow people to begin setting up on the Grove. And you have a lot of companies that are paid to set up tailgates for people. And then you also have college kids who, instead of, you know, having uh, working at the campus gym or having a lawn service or something like that, they make their money by setting up tailgates for people on Friday afternoon. So they don't have to do it themselves. And there's this mad rush of equipment just heading to the Grove and people, you know, kind of boxing out to get their spots.
0: Uh, that's a lot of fun to see. Love it. Love it um okay again i don't want to keep repeating myself but to find the best is, is hard but what is some food in a college football stadium you really enjoyed in a stadium itself yeah like like it's like some sports stadiums have good regional food for example i went to a pelicans game in new orleans had some great louisiana style cajun fish in at in a basketball game you know what what can you think of some stadiums that have some good regional food or some interesting food offerings um it, i I didn't have a chance to try it, but uh, I
1: did see at Husky Stadium, there's one stand that had fish tacos that I wanted to try. That sounded fresh, and, uh, uh, but haven't had a chance to try that. I'm trying to think uh stuff that's really regional and, and local to places I've been. Um, you know, I, I think in, in college sports, just the way concessions are done through some of these larger companies, mm-hmm. you know as much variety as you see particularly in nfl um nfl and major league baseball where uh, yep no problem uh where they're working with companies to kind of wow you and all you with uh, some of the amenities um yeah that's one i would need to think about a little bit okay 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 I'm, i'm sure there are a few but nothing's really
0: coming right to mind all right, buddy of mine Dean he he he's a, a good guy he kind of comes up with the, with the cynical questions at times he wants I, to know what is the crap of the stadium you visited so in terms of the stadium itself like in structure and
1: you know what it is among the power five at least it's got to be Kansas um that stadium is very very old and has not been kept up especially well it's the only place I've been where they have porta-potties inside the stadium along the Oh, wow. Because the bathroom plumbing isn't always reliable, and even when oh. it is, the bathrooms are so small in terms of capacity that during halftime, it just doesn't have enough to support everyone. So uh, that one's in rough shape. But to their credit, now that they've had a couple good years here in a row, they've been able to raise the funds. They're kind of creating a new, what they're calling, I think, a front-door to the University of Kansas, that's on that side of campus, and uh, as part of that, I believe it's a forty million or so uh, dollar renovation of the stadium, that I think will really bring it up to modern standards, which is well deserved because the natural setting of it is actually very neat. It has uh, it's kind of built on the edge of a hill and is kind of an old style horseshoe shape, and the open end goes up this hill to a big Carillon Tower, uh kind of the famous Kansas campus bell towers right there. So prior to games, that's where a lot of people hang out. The tailgate, uh, it's a very cool setting for it. Uh,
0: but that stadium itself, it it definitely needs repair. Needs some work. Needs some work. Okay. Well, I'm glad they're doing a renovation. All right. Uh I'm gonna ask you a fan question get your give me your take on this. UW football now has a policy, started about a year or two ago. That once someone leaves the stadium, they cannot return and re enter the game. What's your What are your thoughts on that? I didn't realize that was a new
1: thing for you, Dub. Um, that's something that when I was a kid, every other year, my family would go to the LSU Florida game in Gainesville. And back then in the mid to late 90s, and I don't think it was until right around 2000, the SEC allowed for passouts where you could leave, get your hand stamped and come back in. And what ended up happening was at halftime, two-thirds of the stadium would empty out, and people would either go back to their tailgates or the way the Florida campus and stadium set up, there were bars right across the street. And they would line up just more cups of beer than I could ever imagine along the tables, and people would just slap down a $5 bill and take a cup. And, you know, a lot of times people were slapping down $50 bills and taking these big handfuls of just... Cups of draft beer and chugging them and going right back into the stadium. The SEC outlawed that as a conference, I believe, around the year 2000, and has kept that since. Okay, But there are places – the Big 12 in particular is the only place I've seen recently that still allows that. Um, Kansas State, where I went earlier this year, Iowa State, uh, they still allow you to leave at halftime, go back to the tailgate, come back in. So I didn't realize that was still something – and the pacto actually, I take that back. Washington State also allowed that. Uh, so I think personally, as somebody who just enjoys the revelry of college football and likes to have a drink or two here and here and there, I don't see an issue with it as long as you know things don't get totally out of hand and there aren't issues with fights in the stands and things like that. But I think at some point you gotta trust adults to be responsible and uh. I would personally welcome
0: a little bit more freedom for people to leave and come back during games. I would too. Somebody affiliated very close to University of Washington Athletic Department. When we when I talked to him about this issue, he said that at Husky Stand they had a concern that the stadium would really clear out during the third quarter. It'd be make it would go down by a third or even half. And so right. I think part of it is they want to keep fans in. They also want to sell more concessions. That's being right. realistic. But um, I, I think people should be able to reenter and leave a stadium if they want, maybe with some, some restrictions within that, but that's my opinion. Right. But, okay. Um, can you mention a funny or goofy moment you have had in your travels to college football stadiums? Just a funny moment or two. Something that just happened that was just kind of, kind of cracked you up. Um,
1: One that kind of comes to mind when I was at the Florida LSU game, uh, my cousin was a great tailgate there very large number of people and kind of the way the easy way to identify their tailgate is having a disco ball hanging from an oak tree that they set up each week right above their tailgate so that's kind of the the motif for the tailgate so to speak and uh one of the guys in the tailgate managed to find a disco ball helmet so shiny and you know reflective all around the outside but it's essentially a bike helmet Uh, so that got passed around the tailgate and everybody was doing all manner of, you know, making poor decision-making when it came to alcohol while wearing this helmet. Uh, so that's one that was just kind of goofy and fun, uh, pretty much the entire weekend that I had in Lubbock, uh, for the Oregon, Texas tech game was goofy. You know, I mentioned that they've got the tradition with tortillas, but, uh, That town has more specialty drinks at every bar and restaurant of any place I've been to. Like each place has its own little unique thing. And at several of them, they have little traditions and songs that they sing before you knock one back. So that was kind of a goofy, fun thing. But uh, really everywhere, every, every trip I make, there's always some unique, fun little thing just interacting with people. Uh, that comes up. So those are pretty free You
0: meet some characters on your, in your college football travels, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Gotcha. Um, A friend of mine, Mark Lamb, an attorney friend, he wants to get your take on the Clemson football stadium on his death Valley. I'm a big fan of it. Um,
1: I've only been there once and it was for a Thursday night game against Georgia tech. Uh, I think that was 2019. Trevor Lawrence was back. They were reigning national champions. And uh, it's one of those, kind of what I tell people is what separates the top venues in college football from the majority is whether or not you feel that excitement and energy the moment you step on campus. There is a palpable feel at some of the top venues that you get that you just don't feel everywhere. Clemson has that. When you come on campus and you see people just filing into the stadium, you know that there's a big event going on. And then once you get in, uh, the run down the hill, I will admit, I I think it's maybe a little overhyped, personally, uh, compared to Inner Sandman at Virginia Tech, some of the other well-known entrances. I think it's a very neat tradition. uh, But to me, that specific aspect of it wasn't as awe-inspiring as I thought it might be. Um, the, The crowd noise in there is strong, but not, I wouldn't put it, top 10. Uh, Clemson fans would be very mad at me for saying that. They insist that it's the loudest venue on the face of the planet, but um, while loud, it's not, you know, ear splitting like some of the places I've been. So uh, overall, I think it's it's a very very good venue. It's one that everyone should absolutely visit at some point. Um, You know, it's just kind of a classic setup with great sight lines. Uh, You know, I tend to walk around stadiums to see it from different angles, and Clemson has some of the best sight lines beginning to end that you'll find uh but overall kind of a
0: mixed bag pretty yeah above average experience it seems like right yeah. yeah yeah okay i i wasn't trying to ignore you i was looking to see if i got any more questions i did miss a question earlier my friend dean did have a question if there's anything the university of washington could add to their football stadium i think they could add to their football it's a kind of big remodel about 10 years ago if there's anything else you think they could add to it to even make it better um, yeah, I mean, I think the one thing you don't want to add is
1: stuff facing Lake. <laughs> Leave that view open, uh, because that's that's kind of the money stuff. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything with the stadium itself. Uh, I think it's actually very well done, particularly on. I'm I don't I'm not familiar enough with the stadium. Which uh which direction is the Motlak side of the
0: stadium? Is that the Montlake side of the stadium would be a little like that south zone? of the stadium. Yeah, that's south. Okay, so on the west side, then the Montlake Bridge uh, is is barely south of the stadium. Yeah, yeah. South. Okay, so
1: I'm I'm guessing then that, that that's the west side of the stadium uh, that we sat on.
0: Is that right? Yeah, we sat on the um, more on the west side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on that side, uh, one of the unique things that I think is actually
1: very neat is the portal entrances at Husky Stadium, the way they've got kind of the lit W with the kind of faux wood background as you come in and the way that's lit up. I've shown that to other people, and I think that's something that other stadiums will probably try to mimic. I think that's just a really neat, small little touch. I actually like the width of the concourses a lot at Husky Stadium compared to many others that I've been to. Uh, So the stadium itself, I think, is in pretty good shape. Uh, The one thing I would say is that I feel like there's kind of a mixed reaction to – so many schools now have some type of tradition or song or something that just ignites the crowd. You know, I mentioned Inner Sandman to open at Virginia Tech. Some places are like that where it's, you know, the stadium entrance running through the T at Tennessee. Um, running down the hill at Clemson, things like that. Uh, But then you also have your traditions between the third and fourth quarter. So at Michigan, they sing Mr. Brightside. At Wisconsin, they do jump around. Alabama, they uh, sing Dixieland Delight. With all the great music from Seattle and also having just kind of that purple rain thing that runs through, I'm surprised that there's not one of those kind of traditions that's just kind of sprouted up on its own uh among interesting point
0: the interesting community. point because uh one thing state. about one husky state. stadium too that i'll comment on it's not the stadium itself it's the community there's really no pub or restaurants right next to husky stadium you have to go about maybe three quarters a mile of the university village north the Mott Lake neighborhood doesn't have any really pubs there anymore. So I, I, I will. It's not. Really, it's just because of geography. It's hard to find right. really close pubs and restaurants that are like directly across the stadium. I. Right. That's one one part of Husky Stadium that may not be a total positive for some fans. So right and yeah, I mean, if you don't
1: have a place to go as a visiting fan, and you're not like me, where you're an extrovert and we will just talk to anybody, right? It's really just tailgating only right around the stadium, and right. Right, uh, that's something that is a lot more common in in college stadiums than in pro. Just because when you're building a pro stadium, there's so much interaction with the city that is kind of the host city for that that franchise that they always want to do developments around it. I've seen it a lot here locally uh, with the planned new Ray Stadium. I mean, it's it's a whole neighborhood process, right. and just from a commercial real estate standpoint. Uh, is something that takes many, many years of planning, and you just don't see that at, at a lot of college stadiums anymore.
0: There are Husky themed bars and restaurants in the University District, University Village, and in the community, right. but they're just not directly next to the stadium. So, right. yeah. yeah, and it, it is a little
1: bit of a haul. I mean, I, I first went to Husky Stadium for the opener against Boise State, and uh, for that game, I think I walked more steps than I have for any other football game, just because I didn't, you know, you look at your phone and you try to judge distance based on how long it takes. It says the walk will be. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I walked from camp through campus, went to Earl's and uh, you know, some of the bars there on, on university. And uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name. There's uh, there's an old Husky bar that's, a little further from University Village, Duchess. That, The Duchess. Duchess,
0: yeah, that's well, fun. That's fun. Love that place. But I. That's a great place. That's a great bar. And I, my high school, Roseville High School, still has a Roseville High School theme there too. So that's, oh, really? that's a great place. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, place. Uh, but walking there, <laughs> well, you well, burn off well, some calories. Yeah. I I park about twenty five minutes when I, from Stadium. When I I get a walk in, I get to walk in when I go to Husky games these days. Okay, I'm going to read something to you. I want to get your take on this. It's an August 23 article in Sports Illustrated I read just from a couple months ago. There's a congressional group that aims to preserve 18 historic college football stadiums, a bipartisan caucus. Believe it or not, there is occasionally some bipartisan stuff that occurs in, in D.C. Oh, believe, right? Right. A bipartisan caucus dedicated to supporting and upgrading the infrastructure of 18 college football stadiums across the country. that are deemed to have historic value to their communities. And specifically, the caucus wants to target security enhancement, tough tech upgrades, and create infrastructure updates for the stadiums, some of which are over 120 years old. And one, for example... Or two, for example, the L.A. Coliseum, the Rose Bowl, will be hosting the Summer 2028 Olympics. What's your take on this? On Congress getting involved in trying to upgrade a bunch of college football stadiums? Generally, uh, I, I tend to
1: take the tack that all politics is local, and the more local you can keep it, the better. Because once you expand out and you try to force things from a national level, you may not pick up all of the nuances that people on the local level understand. So, I would be much more enthused if it were more of a, if there were more of a national fundraising element to preserve stadiums, but actually, kind of getting your hands in there and saying, trying to dictate the types of improvements and changes to a particular stadium. Congress needs to stay out of that,
0: in my opinion. Okay. I, what I read too is part of the thinking. I understand your perspective, but part of the thinking is that with a lot of these stadiums in the future, it's anticipated we'll be hosting college football playoff games in the future of these eighteen stadiums. So maybe there's a some sort of national interstate connection to that perhaps
1: there there could be. I would think, you know, without having read the article and, and seen some of the details myself uh typically the way the bid processes as i understand them for some of these major events whether it's a super bowl or in this case college football playoff games um tends to include incentives basically financial commitments from the host in terms of what a city can expect uh to encourage that investment on its own so you know i know when tampa has hosted the college football national championship in the past uh there were improvements made to city of Tampa transportation in the years leading up to that, that were funded in part by the financial commitment of signing the game contract itself. So essentially in return for uh, gaining the right to that game, there was a specific, you know, here's what we guarantee will be the revenue. It'll at least meet this minimum threshold. So that the city can then make the decision and determination on its own. Well, do we want to improve things so that we can maximize that revenue? Uh, That's kind of my preference and how that would work. But uh, again, I I prefer for things to to stay a little bit more local just because I've seen uh, so many instances. Again, I work in commercial real estate, so I've seen some national uh, legislation that's come through over the years that just makes it so difficult to appreciate some of the local nuances and things that may not uh, come up. You know, if you're trying to mandate infrastructure improvements to plumbing in some places where plumbing can't be improved because of, you know, the specific type of groundwater that exists there and some of the environmental concerns, what do you do? You know, you're kind of mandating something from afar that is a
0: special use to an area. Um, so that's just kind of my fear for that. I'll we'll have, we'll have to study it more, what exactly they have in mind. It could be more of a a goal setting. Right. right. If, if something along to... the lines, and if it's if it's
1: more along the lines of trying to, trying to direct funds to help with, you know, kind of some earmarked changes that uh, a local stadium may already want to produce but just can't raise the local funds for then i think that's a a great initiative but if it's trying to kind of top down dictate
0: certain improvements to stadiums i I think that's kind of a bridge too far security enhancement might be something i could go along with right yeah okay uh let's talk about a few more things um who is a deceased person in college football history you would have loved to spend time with and who's a living person in college football could be a coach university president player you'd love to spend time with Man, I'm going to think about this one a little bit. Um,
1: living somebody that... Uh, well, actually, let's start with deceased. Uh, a little bit more recently deceased, but I would love to just spend an evening, dinner and drinks with Mike Leach. Uh, just such a character, such a unique perspective on... Uh, the sport itself, but then also just topics at large. I mean, I feel like that's somebody that I could sit down with and talk to for hours and never even get around to talking about football, which is kind of unique among somebody you're picking. He was a unique guy, for sure. Uh, So that's one. Um, In terms of
0: living, uh, wow, there are a ton. Um, Nick Saban? I, I don't know. Is there someone? I'm just throwing some names. I've actually met Saban briefly, and I'm not I'm
1: not sure he'd be the okay. uh, guy i choose. Um, I think somebody um, – I mean, it's kind of odd that I'm picking somebody who's so close to Mike Leach in a lot of ways. Uh, but Dana Holgerson would be somebody that I would be interested to just sit down with, in part just because I'm fascinated by – uh, kind of the X's and O's offense of the air raid system and kind of Tell how the that... listeners more about him. Uh, so Daniel Hol- Holgerson has been the head coach at uh, West Virginia. And it was just recently fired from Houston, but was an offensive coordinator going back uh, at Oklahoma and at Oklahoma state. Uh, but kind of comes from the how mummy tree of the air raid offense. So how mummy Mike Leach, Dan Holgerson, some of those guys were, Uh, really kind of the first ones at the university of Kentucky with Tim couch back in the early 2000s. So part of it is just me being a teenager at that time and being fascinated with those changes, uh, to the way college football was played. I've always just been fascinated by how that came about. Uh, and then Dana Holgerson's again, uh, he's quite a personality. He's, he's known for liking to have a good time. And, uh, has been found leaving West Virginia casinos at three in the morning. So uh, he's just one of those guys I just like to kind of see and understand how his brain works and kind of see that dichotomy of, you know, somebody who is a character for sure off the field, uh, but then is also able to rein in a program, manage a program kind of as a CEO, but then also have that analytical insight to the way you design
0: offensive football. Uh, so I just feel like there are a lot of different fun aspects Uh, that would be fun to discuss with them. And many people in Northwest know that Mike Lewis, or Mike Lewis, uh, Mike Leach, the late Mike Leach was the Washington State University coach and very colorful character. He would have been definitely been an interesting person to talk to. Two great names. Okay, I'm going to broaden it. Uh, Who is a living sports figure, can be in college football or in sports in general, you love to spend time with? Him. who's a deceased person in sports history? I ask this question, all my guests, pretty much since late 2019, you love to spend time with? Him. It would, you know, they say you should never meet your heroes, but
1: just again, being the age I am and having grown up with it, living, just the immediate answer has to be Michael Jordan for me. Uh, to me, he is just the ultimate competitor, ultimate sportsman. Uh, not just from a talent perspective, but just his his outlook on competition. He ref I mean, he hates losing so much more than he enjoys winning. Just kind of understanding that mindset and mentality and uh, being able to ask him about so many things that I watched on TV as as a kid, and just little moments, I, I think he would be fascinating to talk to. Although, like many of the greats, uh, I hear he's kind of an asshole, so you know, maybe that would backfire on me. Heard that too. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Willing to take that risk. Um, yeah. and then historically, um, it, again, I mean, it just sounds so cliche. I I want to find you know, there's some other lesser known, but Just in terms of life experience and everything else, uh, Muhammad Ali is just such a fascinating character. And obviously, uh, you know, there's everything he had in the political realm, in the sports world, you know, even with his religious faith and changing his name and uh, just kind of his upbringing, I think he's just a fascinating character that uh, would be worthy of it. But uh, if you're looking to go maybe a little bit more uh, there's some other
0: guys that are a little bit more off the radar that I would be, be fascinated to meet as well. Well, several guests have mentioned Jordan as a living sports figure, love to spend time with. And quite a few mentioned Ali as a deceased sports figure. So those are, uh, those are. are And that's
1: why I said, I kind of feel bad because they're so common and seem kind of cliche, but
0: I think part of the reason they are so common is because they are fascinating figures. For sure. You know, it's. I get great answers to those questions. One of my guests, a local Seattle basketball coach who's been a radio guy, Rick Turner, he answered Oscar Pistorius as a living sports figure, a South African track yep.
1: star, right. had that
0: murder conviction. Yeah, that so I get some wonderful answers to that question. So
1: Yeah, I mean, O.J. Simpson is actually one that came to mind when you first asked the question just because of the same same issues.
0: Just one He'd of- be, he would be very interesting. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, okay, well, i got a couple more questions. I'll let you go. Did Florida State get screwed? Uh, that has been the subject
1: of basically my entire last, what are we looking at, 28 hours now? Um, that's uh, Any beeping you hear in the background is still friends of mine texting me about that exact same issue. As a University of Florida alum, it's really, really hard to take bias out of it uh we were all hoping Florida State would lose one of their last two games one of them being against Florida uh so we are conditioned to feel like fsu earns any bad things that come their way uh just as part of that rivalry but with that said um i take what i believe is a unique take just cuz i haven't heard it stated a lot uh, nationally think there is something to the argument that if you lose such a key player that both the best argument and most deserving arguments are affected by the loss of that player. Um, And the way I would kind of frame it is is like this. I, I think most people would agree that there is some point at which losing a player or group of players from a team that had run the table no longer makes it the same team that it was before. So then the debate becomes, well, at what point does that change occur? But they won with their backup quarterbacks. Right. And, and I think that's an important part. Uh, but part of it is just the fundamental aspect of how college football has been poorly set up from the beginning. You know, something that I've talked at length with one of my close buddies about who ran uh, youth sports leagues. He owned a franchise of a national company, but that's what they do. They run sports leagues for kids, black football, soccer, the whole deal. Um, so he has, he's very in tune with the structures and ways to make things fair. And I think we're stuck with a sport that is bloated in the number of teams that compete for a single championship. We've got 131, I believe we're up to now, uh, 1A schools. And because there are only 12-game seasons, the amount of overlap on these schedules is nearly non-existent, except within conferences. Yet we've decided, historically, since the playoff has begun, even going back to the BCS, that it wasn't worth having automatic conference champion qualifiers, because we wanted to have the best teams. And once you make that decision, I think you kind of have to stick to it, right? if if you want it to be like a pro sport or like the NFL, where there is a clear objective path to the playoff, then I think you have to do it by either splitting off a significant portion of Division I and creating a new division where the schedules overlap a little bit more, or you have to have a system in which conferences get champions in automatically. And even then, as we're going to see with the 12 team playoff where that will exist there's still going to be wild cards that aren't wild cards based on record but basically on subjective judgment and kind of my point to people has been if we're already in agreement that there has to be some subjectivity to how we pick participants what's the limit to that and you know there're several different examples that you can go back to um One is that Florida State, back in 1993, again, this is before there was a four-team playoff, uh, but they lost to Notre Dame. Notre Dame then lost the very next week to Boston College, and there were two remaining undefeated teams in the country, Nebraska and West Virginia. They had decided as part of the Bowl Alliance, which is what it was at that time up until 1996, uh, or I'm sorry, 1998, uh, that the Orange Bowl would try to pair the two best teams, and they chose Nebraska and Florida State over an undefeated West Virginia Big East champion. They also chose Florida State over a one-loss Notre Dame that beat them head-to-head. So it is kind of interesting to see kind of that mirrored uh, circumstance going the opposite way for them this time. Um, And then I I think you have to bring in the question, if what's the real... From a rules standpoint, what's the difference between Power Five and Group of Five? So in 2017, UCF went undefeated, ran the table, had, I believe, two Power Five wins, but the rest of their schedule uh, was either their in-conference AAC opponents, and then I think they had two other, or maybe just one other, uh, non-conference opponent. They ran the table, won their conference championship game, ended up being Auburn in the Sugar Bowl, but they were left out. What functionally makes the Power Five going undefeated in that conference different than going undefeated in the Group of Five? It's really just kind of an arbitrary measure of how we determine strength of schedule, right? Like there are some objective measures you can look at on paper. But that UCF team in 2017 had a strength schedule in the mid fifties, almost identical to what Florida state is this year. So what made them kind of a non-starter for making it into the playoff, but
0: making FSU a sure thing in certain people's eyes. Let me throw out a thought. Let me throw out a thought. We're not going to settle it here. You could make a case that Florida state is not among the top four best teams but you can make a heck of a case to among the top four of the best results of the 2023 right. season. And I think yeah. there's a difference between the best team and who had the best results. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. And yeah. I think one of the points you made earlier
1: is probably the one that's most in their favor, um, which is that they lost Jordan Travis and still won two games against power five opponents. Right. And one of those power five opponents was my school, and we're not good. <laughs> so right. Uh, you know, you kind of weigh that with what it is and, you know, was playing Louisville the same as Alabama playing Georgia, obviously not, but it's still a 10 win team. Again, in this kind of mythical delineation we've come up with of power and non-power conferences. So that win has to count for something. So I I think FSU has a lot of, a lot of things going their way. I, I guess the way I view it overall is that we've we've been in this flawed system for a long time and we've known exactly what those flaws were. The Mike Leach video from 2017 has circulated all day today on social media where he basically calls out the stupidity of the 14 playoff for all the reasons we're seeing now because you're leaving out a team that earned it. I mean, I think that piece of it is indisputable. FSU earned the right to keep playing because they didn't lose. But there are just given, I think, given the confines of the system we have where we've essentially decided that it's not about that most deserving. Otherwise, UCF in 2017 would bet. We've kind of made that decision that it's going to be best for. And with that being the case, how do you weigh that injury to Jordan Travis? And I think there's a ton of debate as to the level at which you rank that. Because Florida State's defense is extraordinary. They are really, really tough. Jared Verst is one of the best defensive linemen I've seen in college football in the last five to ten years. I mean, I think he's a phenomenal football player. And their defense as a whole is very tough to score on. So can they keep games close and score just enough to win in a playoff scenario? Maybe. And maybe they deserve that chance. Um, But I also understand the other side of the argument, which is that We've had two and a half games now to compare stats side by side of FSU's offense with Jordan Travis and without him, and it's literally half the production across the board. I mean, every metric is less. Your than
0: points that. are very good, very very well researched. Good points. I do want to throw another thought to you. I'm just an armchair fan. I'm not claiming to yeah. be that the, the expert. Same here. No, I just... think Washington, Michigan, and Florida State had had and have excellent cases to be in the top four. I think the controversy should have been whether to pick Texas or Alabama because Alabama won the SEC, but Texas beat Alabama. To me, I thought that would be the controversy um, when I woke up Sunday morning. I thought that that was going to be the big struggle. do they pick Alabama or uh, Texas? And to me, that would be a really close call. Right. And
1: uh, I agree. I mean, I kind of foresaw all three going in some of what I, some of what I don't think the committee necessarily thought through 100% um, but part of the reason I thought even before they announced who was 4 and 5 as soon as they announced Texas at 3 I knew Alabama was 4 and they had left yeah. Florida
0: State
1: Yeah, I, if if Florida State had been kept in then they would have been ranked ahead of Texas and it would have been exactly what you said it would have discussion between texas and alabama so clearly they decided that head-to-head mattered more um which again if you're trying to do logical consistency if head-to-head matters that much then isn't winning every game you play head-to-head more important than losing a game so shouldn't fsu still be ahead of texas so i think there's kind of uh some circular logic that they use a lot say, there a lot there with georgia being ranked six if you really think that Florida State has suffered by losing Jordan Travis enough that they're no longer one of the four best teams, can you really make an argument that they're one of the five best teams ahead of
0: Georgia? I mean, not Georgia, there, not there. Georgia was we right. We've got to right. wrap, a, wrap up in a minute, Josh. Uh, <laughs> favorite sports movie? Oh, uh, this one's going to be
1: probably a little off the wall. White men can't jump. Fun, fun, fun. Like the luck of the Irish, only I'm not Irish. You figure it out. Fun one, fun one. Uh, what's in the future
0: for Josh Sims?
1: Uh, well the immediate future is getting back to work and a little less travel. I do have one last game that I plan to attend. Uh, army Navy is just such a special game. So I'm going to do that. Great. This weekend, I may try to get to a bowl game or two. We'll see neutral sites aren't really, don't really get me going the way the campus sites do. Uh, but then it's it's back to the grind of working and trying to make enough money so that I can do this again next year.
0: Josh, love it. Thanks for, for a, a great hour and change here. And uh, that's you and I stay in touch. Thanks for coming on Sports. All right, thanks and Tool. so
1: much, Paul. I really appreciate the invite.